Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, September 9th, 2021. Uh, happy Days of Awe to all who um, observed uh, Rosh Hashanah, uh, as we did, which is why we've been off. We were off Labor Day and then Tuesday and Wednesday for Rosh Hashanah. And we are back with you. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. If I didn't say that before, with me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So it's been six days since we have uh, gathered to uh, bemoan the state of uh, everything, and uh, things haven't gotten any better. Um, so uh, it's a, f- a funny sort of thing. It's like uh, it's like a checkoff play. We're just getting together in every morning to say, I wish we could go to Moscow. Uh, right now... Um, uh, we have, uh, I, I had the weird experience of being up very early this morning watching the opening of Morning Joe uh, uh, with a kind of celebration of the Biden administration's continuing triumph in the humanitarian mission to uh, help people out of Afghanistan. Uh, Americans uh, left there after the fall of Kabul and our, our flight from Afghanistan. Um, because this one plane apparently uh, was allowed to take off from Kabul. Um, and so we are now to celebrate uh, the glorious, I'm sure ransoming in some fashion or other uh, that led to this takeoff of this plane that does not have any effect on the six planes that are in mazar sharif that have been sitting there for days. I don't really know if people are sitting on them, waiting to be allowed to fly, or if they're, I don't know where they are, these people who are supposed to be on these planes in Mazari Sharif, but they're still sitting there. They are effectively hostages to the Taliban. Uh, we are not treating this as though it's a hostage crisis, and I don't really know what to make of that. Noah. Yeah. Okay. So, yes, as you ably summarized, uh, according to Representative McCall, there are at least six planes, many of which have Americans on them, permanent residents, citizens in Masri Sharif. And um, on Friday, I believe it was Secretary Blinken bristled over the suggestion that these were hostages. They're not hostages. They're just people we want to get out who aren't being let out. Um, Very, you know, a fine distinction, but one that this administration finds the need to make because it makes the Taliban look better. Look, they have a very legitimate concern, which is that they want to keep all the Afghans that they can in the country. And we're facilitating that insofar as it's possible for us to do so. The administration is today taking a qualified victory lap over getting this one plane with 30 American citizens on it. Initially, it was reported 200 Americans were getting out. Now, it's just 200 total, 30 of whom are American citizens, untold numbers of Afghan nationals, other nationals. Um, and they took a qualified victory lap on Morning Joe. Um, uh, the press secretary, Jen Psaki, was on. Um, and they asked, you know, how many, how many Americans roughly do you think are still in the country? And she said, roughly 100. So 100 before we got 30 out and 100 after we got 30 out. Magically, this roughly 100 number never changes over the course of this ongoing crisis, now we've been, what, what day is it today? The ninth, so we're nine, ten days into this thing, and it's a static number. 
Uh, and the administration is, again, it's uh, for, for the, the course of this crisis, they've just been getting through one news cycle after the next news cycle. They're not looking forward to any sort of narrative that withstands a 48 hour, you know, 48 hours worth of scrutiny. Um, so we now have this, you know, as far as we know, this ongoing, uh, we'll call it a hostage crisis, because that's what it is, hostage crisis in Marjorie Sharif. Uh, and that's just the one we know about. Uh, there's probably a half a dozen others. Look, no, math is hard. I just have to say math is hard. So you should not be coming down so so uh, uh, in such a hard way on, on poor Jen Saki. But can I just add one thing to this? Because I like that you said that we should call it a hostage crisis. And I think we should call it that because that is indeed what it is, which we all said it would be when the when the pullout was so uh terribly bungled. But this is going to be another one of these tests, which we've seen already the mainstream media fail with the Biden administration. And that's just like there were kids in cages when when Trump was president. Now there are, you know, kids in facilities where we're doing everything we can for them, according to the media. So that how the media is going to handle this is a real test this week in particular. This These people are hostages. If they want to leave and they're in an airplane, by the way, not taken out by the these are privately operated flights now leaving, trying to get still trying to get people out since we abandoned them. So let's see if they call it a hostage crisis. That is what it is. Okay, Abe, uh, let let me play devil's advocate and and speak on behalf of the noble Biden administration's efforts or try to. They're keeping quiet. They're being measured and cautious and prudent and saying very little because there's intense uh, behind-the-scenes efforts being made to get everybody out, as many people out as can possibly be gotten out. And and so they are not panicking. They are not responding to people like us. They are not allowing their passions to get the better of them because they're focused on a larger mission, which is to pull people out, and they are uh, in the process of doing that. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure in some sense... Uh, a portion of that is definitely true. I mean, I think they are engaged in ongoing negotiations to get to get Americans out. If they weren't, that would truly be criminal. It just so happens that keeping quiet about that also protects them from having to go out in public uh, and uh, try to create a narrative that wouldn't stand up to scrutiny, that no one would be satisfied with. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure they, they have to be uh, engaged in ongoing negotiations. But I shudder to think what these negotiations entail. I mean, if you think about how much the Taliban now has, how, how pretty they are sitting, imagine what sort of cherries on top that we, that, that we could give them that could possibly tip the scale even further. OK, well, here's another thing to think about. Remember, the dominant American position for many, many decades was we do not negotiate with terrorists, right? That was the absolute ironclad rule, and the Reagan administration nearly was decapitated uh, in 1986 when it turned out that we were negotiating with Iran over the, right? Yep, but we're so far beyond that, John. We're coordinating with terrorists. Forget right. it's not uh, negotiating w- w- speaks to a position that would mean that the position of the administration or of the White House was that we were on opposing sides with the Taliban from from every news conference, uh, certainly from CENTCOM, uh, uh, Pentagon news conferences. Um, the story is that 
We are working together because we have common goals with the Taliban. So we are we are so far down the rabbit hole. We are through the looking glass. We are in, we are in an absolute different universe in terms of our posture towards bad actors. Okay, can I no, and let me put it to you this way. So we are now not only negotiating with terrorists but coordinating with terrorists. Now, why was the original policy that we don't negotiate with terrorists? Was it moral? Yeah, it was moral. It was certainly the idea that you don't do it because they're evil and they've done something evil. But that was not why. Uh, It was a kind of broken windows theory, which is you negotiate with terrorists and then terrorists will do things knowing you'll negotiate with them. They'll kidnap your diplomats. They will will hijack planes. They will do whatever they have to do to force you to kowtow to them. This is how Palestinians for decades got uh, Palestinian terrorists out of jails in Europe was by acts of terrorism that would then, they would negotiate for the release of their people. So we're talking about the additional leverage that we have over the Taliban. And it suggests, you know, increasingly the reporting suggests that that leverage is uh, insufficient to get what we need done. Now, everybody thinks there's economic assistance to be provided to the Taliban, which is humiliating enough. Um, But increasingly, it does look like what the administration initially thought would be their leverage. They said they had access to the international economy. And if they want to be part of the global marketplace, we are going to be the way they get into that. Um, Increasingly, it looks like Beijing is the link that will um, allow the Taliban to re-engage in the global economy. And so what we really have to provide them is just monetary assistance. So what else do we have? Diplomatic recognition. That's one of the things that they've been asking for, that they're seeking, and the administration has coyly dangled uh, before the Taliban. And once we're and we're going to get into this, I think later in the broadcast. But once you take a look at the government that we're talking about recognizing, it is not just a moral atrocity; it is an albatross around this administration's neck that will haunt it for the remainder of this presidency in ways I don't think they even fully understand. Otherwise, they would have never contemplated such a thing. Well, okay, so let's talk about uh, previous negotiations with the Taliban that presaged the current circumstances. 2014, uh, uh, Bo Bergdahl, a, uh, an American service member, um, essentially defected to the Taliban, now sa- says that he did so out of because he was in a state of extreme uh craziness uh due to uh the trauma the trauma of serving in afghanistan like went walked himself over to the taliban and uh was then held captive for five years and then we negotiated for his release with effectively a prisoner swap um and uh we are now informed uh by uh the afghan television network tolo news uh that uh Four out of the five Gitmo detainees who were released in exchange for Bergdahl will now be holding senior positions in the Taliban government. And, and they Tairawa, didn't. They, Norula yeah. Nuri, Abdul Haq Wasik, and Mohammed Fazl. Uh, one of them will be the acting minister for information and culture. One will be the acting minister of borders and tribal affairs. One will be acting director of intelligence and one is deputy defense minister. So these were not low level prison. You know how Gitmo was like, oh, these people, I mean, they were just in the battle. They were just picked up off the street. These are senior Taliban officials who are now going to work to 
you know, uh, do really bad things. And Fazl in particular, we know to have uh, conspired with Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden and help, helped him in the plotting of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, which we should note the uh, the the Taliban government will be celebrating its, its rise to power and commemorating it on September 11th this year. You said Sirajuddin Haqqani, right? No, no, I did not. Okay, well, that's the interior minister. Right. Who's, um, has a $10 million bounty on his head by the United States, is going to be in charge of domestic internal security, uh, and is the head of the Haqqani network, which and, has operational of, ties yeah. with Al-Qaeda. And, of course, you know, a contributor to the New York Times uh, editorial sure. op-ed page, just uh, in case you've forgotten One of many, forgotten one of many uh, yeah. Um, so I think, and of the, course, the, yeah, you said a, yeah. a cunt, the prime minister who's got yes. a United Nations, you know, who's sanctioned by the United Nations, yeah. how he's reintroduced into the international environment as a responsible actor. I have no idea. Right. So I think that the circumstances that we're talking about here is that everything is old is new again. We have a hostage crisis like 1979. We are now in a position where we are negotiating with terror. We negotiated for the release of terrorists, uh, uh, because of Bo Bergdahl, uh, and uh, those terrorists are now occupying senior positions in uh, what will be an enemy government, even though we are uh, supposedly considering that we have commonalities with that government and uh, things that we, we can do together. Um, a lot of what we've been talking about here are the consequences of what has happened with the decision to pull out of Afghanistan, the fall of Kabul, the crisis that we saw, the tens of thousands of Afghans who who worked with the U.S. who are now going to be in huge, who are in huge trouble and all of that. We can now add to this, this question of what, who will be empowered by the example of the Taliban's success here, not only in overthrowing this government and being installed in power exactly, you know, 20 years to the day that they, the thing happened that made us go in there to remove them. But um, what terrorist groups will do now that they know that uh, the Biden administration will uh, literally negotiate with anybody? Well, and one other point, which is what the American people should believe when we hear it coming out of the mouth of Joe Biden or uh, Antony Blinken, because Blinken was the one who back in 2014, when he was working for Obama, assured Americans that none of these people that they were releasing in exchange for Bo Bergdahl would ever pose another national security threat to the United States. He claimed on television that the threat that they posed to Americans was now mitigated. But there's also yet another nightmare here, I think, which is that because we are coordinating with the Taliban and because we might very well recognize the Taliban, Taliban government's authority as legitimate, we have, the U.S. has zero leg to ever stand on when denouncing any foreign actor who's involved with any bad actors, uh, who's helping out terrorists, who's 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 on the sort of other side of the, the, the right side of history, as, as, as people like to say. Um, we have completely lost our ability to look at other countries and say, we are objecting to what you do simply because it's morally wrong. We, 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 we kind of can't do that anymore. And that's a very big deal. But there's also the logistical fact, which is that what we said to Europe when when the French, when the Germans, when the Italians would negotiate with the you know with the PFLP and other uh, terror groups is, you guys are being crazy. All you're doing is summoning more trouble upon yourself. 
it's like paying a blackmailer. I mean, there's no end to it. You are you are privileging uh, this um, protection form of right. action, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, not only are we we what are we going to say to people who do this going forward now that we have essentially become an active, maybe the world's most uh, definitive uh, player uh, in 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 the act of uh, negotiating with with terrorists. Um, you know, there is look, there is a there is a a gigantic the 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 Torah obliges the Jewish community to ransom hostages. There is a there is a long Western tradition of the idea that you cannot leave people behind and that it is moral to ransom hostages. So I, I'm not saying that the United States government can do nothing about the Americans who are left there. I'm not. I mean, I, circumstances have changed. We need to do whatever we can to make sure that Americans aren't murdered by the Taliban or imprisoned by the Taliban. Having said that, this goes back to the first cause here, which is we chose to do this. We chose to pull out of Afghanistan the the reason that those people are in danger and that we are having having to ransom them was Joe Biden's foolishness, moral, practical, and personal idiocy and vanity about wanting to be the person whom history would celebrate as having ended this war. That's the key here, is that every time you go back, you go back to the first principle, which is this didn't have to happen. We didn't lose this war. We pulled out of it unilaterally. We pulled out of it unilaterally like a Jenga piece that was supporting the Afghan army, and then the Afghan army collapsed because we were we were the supporting Jenga piece. Um, Brett Stevens has a really biting column about <clears throat> Joe Biden's mental acuity, uh, and not merely you know the, the stuff relating to age, but simply his own belief in his uh, unearned belief in his own intelligence, um, which. Uh, is is hard, you know, to accept. I think for people who want this this administration to succeed, mostly and primarily just because it would present an alternative uh, theory of governance than the Trump administration. Um, but to cling as tightly as he did to these events, even when they were unfolding in the worst possible ways, and to continue to you know maintain his attachment to this outcome that was gradually becoming worse and worse and more and more unrealizable. Um, has made the situation far worse because he's invited, you know, not just one mission accomplished moment, but one of many, several mission accomplished moments, and not just this ongoing hostage crisis, which will not go away despite uh, the the desperation on the part of the press to turn the page on this sort of thing. It is unseemly the extent to which they are desperate to look for a new narrative and a new story, and apparently the media-consuming public just won't let it go. God bless them. Okay, I um, want to talk to you guys. But, about... but also briefly, before you move on to this, um, the the notion here is, uh, Christine, I don't re remember Secretary Blinken saying this about Americans being more safe. That's something I want to track down. Um, but he said our mission was accomplished in 2011 in Afghanistan, that terrorism, the locus of terrorism had moved outside of Afghanistan. And there's a reason for that, because we had pushed it out. We are now inviting it back. And every member of this administration who speaks candid candidly about this sort of thing says the mission in Afghanistan, the counterterrorism mission in Afghanistan is not over. And over the horizon strikes being as messy as they are, the likelihood that we'll be reengaged in a counterterrorism operation in Afghanistan soon enough within this administration is very high. And the political blowback that George W. Bush experienced from just one mission accomplished 
moment um, should have dissuaded them from this course. So um, let me just pull back a little bit and talk to you guys about Dan Senor's post-corona podcast. You've heard me talk about it before. You can download it on on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher. Um, this is the podcast that Dan, uh, a New York uh, venture capitalist and intellectual author, co-author of Startup Nation, member of Commentaries Board, um, has been doing to try to get a handle on what life will be like when we actually can finally put the virus in the rearview mirror. And he, um, uh, he t- this week's episode uh, is with a uh, remarkable um, American-Israeli venture capitalist named Michael Eisenberg, who is also a kind of Torah scholar and practical advice giver and uh, goes through uh, how his investments, seed capital investments in a lot of um, uh, high-tech AI-type companies, um, how the virus impacted those investments, how uh, the how uh, Corona showed a future uh, for uh, for this kind of investing, and what lessons are to be learned from it, and he uh, goes more broadly into a very interesting issue, which is the notion of the universal basic income, uh, which uh, you may have heard talked about incessantly. It was Andrew Yang's key issue in his presidential campaign. Charles Murray's written it. a lot of people on all sides of the political spectrum have talked about how. Uh, the rise of tech means that we need to provide people with a universal guaranteed basic income um, because uh, because jobs are going away that uh, the unskilled get. And um, Eisenberg points out that we have just had a massive national experiment in UBI in the form of this extended unemployment insurance. And despite thoughts and claims that the universal basic income would give people the room and space to be creative and to do fresh, interesting zippy new things. We've had a year and it turns out it doesn't happen. That's not true. People don't use this money to sort of like innovate in their own lives. They use this money to be indolent for the most part or not to really, you know, or to just, you know, go on with their lives because this is a fantasy that uh, paying people not to work will actually encourage work. And it's a very interesting conversation. I strongly recommend it. And last week's, with Siddhartha Mukherjee, uh, the doctor and scholar of cancer and other and other uh, diseases, or author for, of, uh, in the New Yorker, who's also written extensively about Corona. Great conversation with him last week. Michael Eisenberg this week. That's Dan Dan Singer's post Corona podcast. Download it Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, and you will be enlightened and enthralled. Okay, um, so. Uh, Sometime today, Joe Biden is going to give a big speech outlining uh, the new war on COVID. It's, yes, we're back on a wartime footing. It's a wartime footing to combat COVID. And I I, I don't mean to be flip about this because I take this very seriously, but the degree to which we have lost the thread of this conversation about COVID and that he has, that everybody has, particularly sort of in sort of mainstream liberal precincts, is is getting more and more um, maddening by the day. I mean, David Leonhardt in the New York Times yesterday wrote a piece using the latest data that suggests that if you are vaccinated, you have between you you have a one 
in 5,000 or 1 in 10,000 chance of being hospitalized for a breakthrough infection. One, maybe 1 in 10,000. Okay? 1 in 10,000. Uh, we keep hearing there are surges of, 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 uh, of pediatric cases. There are no, there, these are not surges in pediatric cases. There were none, now there are some. And no, and people are, Delta is not making people sicker than they were before. It is making more people sick who are unvaccinated. And once again, we have a circumstance in which we have more than 75% of the country having had its first shot, being told that they need to go into a defensive crouch and live in a hole. And uh, Biden apparently is going to do something like that today. He is not going to say we're winning. He's going to say we're losing and we need to redouble our efforts to win again. By the way, at a time when the Delta wave is actually finally subsiding, um, uh, daily, daily new cases are down um, a couple of clicks. And you could actually see it if you look at any uh, bar graph of, of, of recent infections. So among other things, this will allow the administration to say, see what happened when I got tough, the, the cases dropped. Well, and, it, and it, whereas real leadership would be to stand up and say, in the face of all the, 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 the description you just provided, uh, John, of the kind of liberal, continued liberal hysteria about a lot of this, would real leadership would be to stand up to that group and say, you know what, this is now something we have to live with. It's endemic, not pandemic. It's something that can be mitigated through vaccinations, which we know to be safe, we know to be effective. And then he could give some specifics about, you know, whether who and when we need booster shots, all, all of the questions that the average rational American has right now about this virus. But the overreaching, overarching message should be, we are generally heading back to normal now. And we have to start to accept the risk of some of this just there being spikes here and there, regional variations, especially among the unvaccinated. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy said something along those lines, right, where he said that the the goal here, articulating an end goal, finally, is not zero cases. It's almost no hospitalizations and no deaths as a result of this, but not not no COVID. COVID is a permanent feature of life now. And good for him for saying something that should have been articulated last year, let alone this year, but at least it's in the ether. But to go to a wartime footing now, against people who are, uh, you know, obdurately refusing to get vaccinated is like FDR fixating on on uh, Bund members in 20 in 1942. I mean, they are not listening to you. They are an unreachable demo. So all you're doing is talking about the talking to the same people who are already with you already compliant. It's, it's worse than worthless. And I don't know who the audience is for this. It's certainly not, you know, an operational attempt to get a hand your hands around COVID. It's it's a narrative. For the for the benefit of the liberal audience. Okay, look. So there is a piece in Slate. I'm not ordinarily in the habit of recommending things from Slate, and I'm not recommending this. I'm only talking about it as as an object lesson by Shannon Pallas, who is, according to her, she is the science editor of Slate. Okay. So, uh, and this is a piece that begins. I'm not doing very well right now. It's month 20 of covering the pandemic, living through the pandemic, living with everyone else who is living through the pandemic too. Even as things are so much better, they are still very bad. You have only to glance at the hospitalizations or turn on the news briefly to know that. And of course, it is my job as Slate Science Editor to stay up to date on the news. Why am I, why am I reading this to you? Because I want to read you. I want, I want you to think about the paragraph I'm about to, to read you, okay? It says this. 
Sometimes I feel like a little blinking SOS light among so many. Journalists covering COVID are not okay. Parents are not okay. Healthcare workers are not okay. And these are just the people we hear about. There are plenty of other people who are absolutely also not okay who don't get this kind of coverage because she links to various articles about parents, journalists, and healthcare workers. It feels sort of wrong to say that there is no help coming, but I'm not entirely sure what help is coming for all these groups of people and for all the rest either. I think the big part of the problem for me is that the tools to ease this crisis are right there, namely vaccines, but also masks and rapid tests. And so many people are just not using them. And also our system is not set up to deploy them. And so we are all stuck. Okay, 76% of everybody in the United States over 18 has had one shot, okay? In three weeks, three quarters of the company will be full, country will be fully vaccinated among those who are at risk from getting sick and dying from COVID. 99% of the people who get sick and die from COVID are over the age of 18. Almost, we're now taking it as a given that uh, that 75% of people having this is not is not enough. It's not good enough. We can't get the entire nation to these numbers because. The vaccines are still not approved for people 20, uh, 12 and under who make up, I don't know, 55 million people. So um, what, do, what does she mean she's not okay? What does she mean things aren't better? This is like when people say that, you know, race relations are no better than they were in 1940 or that life for, you know, everything is as bad as it was during Jim Crow. Like these are delusional views that are being expressed by somebody who has this gigantic platform. Millions of people are going to read this piece. It is crazy. She is saying, I am a crazy person. The vaccines are there. They're not helping. They are helping. Everybody who is vaccinated is safe from, almost everyone is safe from death. 99% of the hospitalizations in this country due to the Delta variant are among the unvaccinated. Help me out here. This is who Biden thinks he needs to be talking to. This person. Noah, you're saying that that the that the unvaccinated, you know, Trump voter person, you know, like extremist, Eric Metaxas, psychotic, like that person is the one whom Biden can't reach. He can't reach Shannon Palace. Listen to what she's saying. They're the ones who can't be reached. They're the ones who are saying, wear a mask forever. Like, And they're doing this talismanically. They're not at risk from dying or getting sick from COVID. They're really not. I mean, they can get sick from COVID. They won't die from it and they won't be hospitalized from it. What are they walking around in masks for? They don't have it and they're not going to give it to someone. So who is he talking to? You said, who is he talking to? He's talking to her, but why is he talking to her? She is unreachable. She is more unreachable than the Trump voter who's like, who's saying, I don't want to get vaccinated because, you know, the, the studies aren't there. I mean, <clears throat> Rahm Emanuel's famous formulation, never let a crisis go to waste, was um, an articulation of an aspect of center-left liberal political philosophy, which is that crises are opportunities to enact via um, uh, executive authority or through uh, the urgency of a moment, policies that would otherwise be unpalatable to the general public, right? Well, a corollary to that theory is that 
you shouldn't let a crisis go to waste. Therefore, you should conserve the crisis, right? Hold on to as much of the crisis as possible because when the crisis goes away, the raison, raison d'etre, I can't pronounce it, it's French. Raison d'etre. Whatever. <laughs> that goes away. And that's more important than the crisis or the solution to the crisis. I... There has to be a permanent crisis in the liberal worldview. And this is it. This is as good as any. In fact, this is better than most because it is total. It's it's so total that it justifies, by definition, totalitarian policy prescriptions. Look, we see what's going on in Australia, right? So Australia has a zero COVID policy explicitly. Their idea is they don't want any cases of COVID in the country. If there's one case of COVID, a city is locked down. People there are going insane. There are confrontations with cops. They're limiting the, they're locking people down and then they're refusing to allow them to drink. Like the, the, the extent to which democratic norms and the general sort of like live and let live world is shut down by this, this uh, theory of zero COVID is now evident for everybody to see. Um, and it's not, it's sustainable only at the, you know, only at incredibly high opportunity cost in terms of liberty, in terms of sanity, in terms of what makes life worth living. It's not, but it's not even sustainable. Like it's actually not achievable. It's not an achievable goal. And the idea that we should buy in, it's certainly the Australian model is not achievable here, but the, the idea that, that the buy-in that you're asking Americans to make at this point is you still have to trust the experts who know what's best, who know, who will give you, you know, trust the science, trust the experts, et cetera, et cetera. That's no longer really possible given the, given the mixed messages and given the facts on the ground, as you said, with vaccination rates and, and, um, and thank God the fact that this virus, even in its variant form, still has been sparing uh, the youngest vulnerable children. Um, kids are going back to school now. You know, there are cases, but it, these are not serious. It's not as serious as it once was. But I, to Noah's point, I think the reason it is a, a hugely effective as a narrative uh, political score settling point is that there's an actual body count horrifically. This is something that really was a horrible crisis. It's we're now getting out of it. But unlike, say, the always put off future climate crisis, um, this was real. We all experienced it. It was horrifying. You know, people lost loved ones, family members. It was terrible. They can keep playing on that. That 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 emotional space is primed for people still. Even people who are rational can be can be touched by that, and they are using it. It's very manipulative. And there's a built-in mechanism that will allow anyone who wants to to extend this crisis for as long as they wish, and that's the variant. Every time there's a variant, there's a whole new slew of stories, and they always say the same thing: new variant might elude vaccine and may impact children more. That's all you have to say when any new variant comes up, and then we're right back in it. That's basically been the messaging of the teachers unions for the past six months. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So Israel has decided to go with this booster shot system, right? So now, uh, like most everybody over the age of 60 uh, has gotten a third booster shot of the Pfizer vaccine, and uh, apparently it has broken the back of the Delta surge, uh, in Israel, um, and uh, where there's now this incredible confusion about whether or not there's going to be there are going to be booster shots here, and some of the scientific 
you know, some in the public health community think there shouldn't be, and the FDA doesn't want Biden to say that there should be and there shouldn't be. And by now, you can't even understand who's on what side of what here in this world and what they're privileging and what they're saving and why you shouldn't have a booster and what's wrong with the booster because they can't talk turkey because if what they're going to say is, I don't know, the booster, that may be a bridge too far. Then it's like, really? Are you saying the va- the vaccine is maybe like toxic? Like, ooh, you can't say that. So you have to talk and I don't know what it is that's going on there. But that's what I say that they're losing the thread. Biden's going to give this big speech about breaking the back of the Delta variant. But as Abe says, the Delta variant isn't the end of this. There's the Mu variant that's out there that apparently isn't isn't as bad, but maybe it could be. You never know. And then whatever comes after Mu, as somebody said the other day, by the time you know, by the time 2024 rolls around, everyone in America is going to know the Greek alphabet for the first time, you know, since 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 the founding fathers were all literate in Greek. I mean, this is so the losing the thread thing is all part and parcel of. Some of what's going on in Afghanistan also, it's like these these arguments, things happen and then people shift around and say the opposite of what they said three days earlier or the opposite of what they said, you know, six years earlier or something like that. And how are you supposed to trust that anybody is just being straight or like being being commonsensical or something like that? Where's the common sense when you have... The science editor of Slate, which again is a publication owned by the Washington Post, you know, is has a you know very large readership and all that, saying, I'm a 31-year-old woman losing my shit. That's what she says in this piece. I it's like if you're losing your shit, quit your job. Stop peddling your misinformation that is coming out of your incredibly neurotic head because you've already said you can't, your perspective is skewed. And you're writing a piece saying my perspective is skewed. Listen to me while I talk about this. Am I am I crazy? No. Okay, I'm, I'm not crazy. crazy. Good. I'm glad They're to hear that I'm crazy. They're crazy. Good. Okay. And you know who's not crazy? David Bonson of the Bonson Group, our friend, publishes those two great internet newsletters, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. Macroeconomics, microeconomics, a study of what is going on in the economy, the interplay of politics and policy, the behavior of the Fed, what's going on in the markets. You get a daily perspective in the dctoday.com. You get a weekly perspective from 30,000 feet in dividendcafe.com. David runs the Bonson Group, a $3 billion under management by coastal financial services firm that is the gold standard. And not, and not that I'm saying he supports the gold standard. He maybe does, maybe doesn't. I don't, I misuse the term if I'm not attacking, attaching him to any, any such thing. Um, but what he is and what these newsletters are is the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. And you need to subscribe to his newsletters today. Go to dividendcafe.com and subscribe. Um, let's talk a little more about Biden and an uh, interesting thing that w- going on as the news has just been so bad for him, one thing after the other. Now we got Joe Manchin saying that he doesn't want, he's absolutely not going to vote for the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. And in response, the Democrats in the House are, in, are making the bill larger, which they can't actually do because they've already passed a, they've passed a framework that pegs it at $3.5 trillion. They're now adding things to it. Meanwhile, 
Bernie Sanders and Chuck Schumer in the Senate want to add dental and vision and 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 prosthetics and 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 head bandages and whatever. I don't know what everything is supposed to go into these bills as though they can be paid for, and they're not going to happen. And then they're going to have this two months of debate with Joe Manchin already saying, "I'm not voting for it," so it's dead because it only takes one person on their side to kill to not to vote for it to kill it. So they're losing the thread. And the storms were terrible for him. Afghanistan's terrible for him and all of this. So what does he do to try to get the news back in his corner? He sends letters. His administration sends letters to a bunch of Trump people who were appointed to boards at the end of the Trump administration on these fixed terms, three-year terms, service academies, certain types of arts panels and things like that, demanding their immediate resignations uh, or, or they will be fired, which, in fact, they can't really be fired because... They were appointed to fixed terms, and uh, this is uh, maybe they can be fired. It's not clear. People don't do this. They don't replace people on these boards. This is like a new form of social warfare. So you've got them, Sean Spicer and Kellyanne Conway and others writing these, uh, you know, impassioned letters about how shocking this is that they're doing that. And then Democrats are all defending them, and the Republicans are fighting, and it's this is all like. Uh, as Christine said before, this is like a gigantic look hay squirrel moment. Like, who cares who's on the board of the service academy? I don't. I mean, but it is. But but who cares? The the left Twitter, left wing Twitter cares about these. Uh, the, these are heads on the on the spike. But yeah, it is. It's it's literally what I do when my dog is getting into mischief. I he has a literal stuffed squirrel, and I throw it across the room, and he races towards it. He's so happy, and he makes the squirrel squeak for like a good five or ten minutes, and then he forgets the mischief he was getting into before. That's precisely what Biden is doing with this story, and it is especially galling for the we are the norms crowd. I know we bring this up a lot, but it's it's. If you're going to pretend and posture at being the governance and norms crowd, probably you shouldn't go around behaving like a mafia boss saying, you know, get out of my, you know, get out of this shop. I own the shop now, but I, but I was hired. I have a contract. I don't care. I mean, the, the bullying tone of it is going to satisfy his base, but it, it, it looks bad. It just looks bad. I don't think it's just his base. I mean, I think you create this entire dynamic. Like this is like days, this is, you know, what is he handing right-wing talk radio a talking point for for a couple of days? Like, for what? So he can appoint not Kelly and Conway to well, they the should, board they of, the, of the Schmendrick Association? Well, they mean, shouldn't take the bait either. They should stick to the serious, stay on Afghanistan, stay on COVID, stay on actually the stuff where there's real, uh, which is important. Yeah, because, you know, Sean Spicer is a deeply serious person who really wants to keep focused on the really important issues. Like flamenco a dancing, blithering moron as it happens altogether, and always was, and always will be. Anyway, but you know, not that I, not that I want to insult Sean Spicer, except for every reason that he deserves to be insulted. But please, Abe, uh, Biden is going to go back to Trump more and more. I think as things go wrong for him, and he and he has uh, in in other ways too. You know, um, not only explicitly blaming uh, part of the Afghan debacle on on Trump. Um, but uh, talking about the state of the economy or, or, or employment and saying, imagine if the other guy were still here, saying the stock market's up and I haven't said one word about it. You know, uh, in other words, uh, I, I, unlike Trump, who, who would, you know, brag about the, 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 the new highs that the market would hit while he was. Unlike Trump, I'm not going to talk. Exactly about right. right. I'm not <laughs> talking about right. that at all. Don't expect me to talk about that. No. 
Right. But when has that but, ever but, worked? But, but, that they they drove us into the ditch thing. I mean, that was Obama's play when things got hairy in 2010. It didn't work then. But also, I thought the yeah. whole, the, whole, the whole idea behind Biden and people who support him was to get beyond Trump. We're sick of talking about Trump. I don't want to, it's enough about this. Try every day. There's madness with Trump, and now they 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 want nothing more than to cling to the, the, the Trump era politics. Okay, I want to talk to you about what Trump is doing over the weekend. But before I do that. I want to talk to you about Aura, because the way you use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade, but the security tools that you've been using have mostly stayed the same. Aura provides complete digital security to help protect your online accounts, finances, devices, and more in one easy-to-use app. Uh, With Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast, like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online, or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name. Here's a scary stat. Every 10 seconds, someone becomes a victim of fraud or identity theft. What's worse, 23% of those people don't get their money back after the attack. If you think it could never happen to you, you could be their next target, and Aura can help. Aura is easy to set up. All plans come with a million dollars in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experienced U.S.-based customer support that's got your back. Aura is a new type of security service that protects all of your online information and devices with one simple subscription. With an easy online dashboard and alerts sent straight to your phone, Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues. And right now, Aura has a limited time offer for our listeners to get early access in three free months when you visit Aura.com slash commentary. Go to Aura.com slash commentary to get access before anyone else. And three months for free for a limited time. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash commentary. So Donald Trump is doing something very interesting Saturday night, September 11th. Uh, he is not commemorating uh, the, the 20th anniversary of this um, hinge moment in American history, this terrible tragedy. He is going to uh, do commentary on a prize fight uh, for pay. Uh, he and Donald Jr. Um, and uh, so a lot of people are going around saying, ah, you see... And they're right. Like, this is disgraceful. This is not how he is an ex-president. He should be as uh, he should be doing solemn things on this 20th anniversary, but he's not a solemn person. And that's not who he is. And that's not who he's going to be. And this brought put me in mind of a point um, about Trump and his understanding of his base and his support, which is He's going, this is a version of him, This you should think that he's running uh, because the, of this is what he's doing. He's not doing this just to score some easy money. Uh, in 20, throughout the 2000s and the early 2010s, Trump made a beeline for what I called years ago the proletarian media. Invisible to most people like us and, and had no idea that it was going on. Alex Jones wrestling, the World Wrestling Federation, all this very stuff that we consider very low rent, very classless, all of that, you know, uh, full of conspiracy theories and lies and fake sports and it's all fake and all that. Um, And he, uh, with his, the aid and maybe I think the planning, the genius planning of Roger Stone, he went there and he, he courted those People. There are millions and millions of them. They're mostly men. They're mostly non-college educated men. A lot of them don't have high school degrees. He went and he said, I'm with you. I'm your guy. I like things you like. I eat the way you eat. I like to watch people throw chairs at each other's heads. You know, I, 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 I like all of this. 
And uh, and it's one of the reasons why when he entered the race in 2015, he was suddenly at 20% in the polls from the get-go. And you're like, how did this happen? Yeah, I mean, a lot of famous people want to run for office. Why was he at 20%? Because he had worked this room. He had worked this room for years and years and years, and they knew him. And he came in, and 5 million people were like, he's my guy. He's my guy. And if he's going there, I think that is yet another indication that he is absolutely going to run in 2024. I'm certain he's going to run in 2024, but I, I'm not, I think John, we might be slipping again into, into, uh, ascribing more, um, strategy to his moves than, than, than they warrant because he can continue to go, go to this, um, to work this room and to do this sort of alternate pop culture, um, you know, uh, uh, NASCAR and wrestling and prize fights. He could do all of that. He doesn't need to do it on that day. I don't see how that helps him. And he already has all those people. Um, the, the strategic thing to do, I think, would be at a moment like this, when, when the other side is suffering, when, when the supposed antidote to Trump is proving... Um, to be a pretty insufficient antidote um, would be to make some sort of play for people who he doesn't already have. But this is, of course, something he never did. He, he, he was always incapable of doing. Yeah. <clears throat> Briefly, I will, just as a digression, prize fighting pugilism is not the same thing as WWE. It is not the same audience as UFC. It is a very different audience, a far more sophisticated audience, I would, I would contend, John. Um, having grown up watching boxing, um, it is a, uh, it's a, a genuine sport. And though it attracts, you know, there's a significant overlap. I don't think this is the same room at all. It's a very different room. Um, it's, it's not the same room as the type of people who formed what you called in 2016, 2017, the nucleolus of uh, his base. Um, there, again, there's overlap, but it's, it's a different kind of audience. The simplest explanation here is that this is a quick check. That's it's easy money because the, Far more complicated strategic answer that you gave is I don't think the the thought process that you can attribute to the people who are around Donald Trump. It's 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 seventeen steps when the when one or two suffice. Uh, and does this indicate that he's running? I mean, he's doing everything he can to indicate he's running. Sure, so it's just one more indication. Does okay. this does this com- contribute to the, the you know his hardcore twenty percent? Uh, in the same way that the conspiracy theory media did, in the same way that showing up at WWE events did, that created that, that alternative culture that nobody sees. Yeah, I don't think so. This is far more above board. This is much more visible. Okay. First of all, I'm sorry, but you can't say that this fight is part of the glorious and classic tradition of, you know, Marcus of Queensbury fisticuffs. This is a fight between a 58-year-old man and, and, a, and a UFC fighter. I mean, Evander Holyfield is going to be 59 years old next month. He hasn't fought in a professional bout since 2011, and he's fighting a UFC guy. This is a stunt fight. It's not like, you know, this is not, you know, Ali versus Foreman or anything like that. So let, let's just... It's a spectacle, but every, you, know, you come for the undercard, too. You do? He's not coming I for do. the undercard. Anyway, I don't know. I that I, I love to celebrate, but I hate boxing, and I, I, I find the whole act of 
saying boxing is the sport of kings and all that, you know, demented. But nonetheless, I will I will give you that. And I will also give it, I don't think it's a good, maybe it's a terrible strategy, but I'm saying what it indicates about his mindset is that he he likes to cultivate his own field. Like he doesn't need these people, but the fact that he's going back to the well again and again and again uh, may mean in his own mind that this is his version of strategy. Yeah, but he's also been crashing weddings at Mar-a-Lago because he needs the ego boost of people going and, you know, standing up there and going, miss me now? I mean, there's there's a sense in which there's kind of a pathetic old man quality to what he's doing when he keeps going back to the well and, and demanding everybody praise him. I mean, I mean, that's true. But, you know, you see these polls and, you know, 70% of Republicans want want him to be the nominee in 2024. I mean, I, I you know, uh, he's going to give rallies in the next couple of months. Look, he's going to be pretty old. He's not in very good shape. Uh, you know, uh, unlike Biden, by the way, which is you can say Biden's old and cranky and senile and all that. But I mean, he he kept his body in pretty peak condition, it would appear, and did a lot of working out and keeping himself healthy. I don't think that's Trump at all and you know um running for it's no joke you know running for president and Melania doesn't want to do it old. again Melania's out like she's like I don't want to run I don't want to be first lady yeah. again so anyway who knows we'll, we'll see we'll see what's happening we'll see what's happening and you know but I will say this which is that if you've ever been behind the wheel of a high performance sports car and you realize how much better a car can be you never want to settle for a regular car again and you're going to feel the same way about your ex chair from the moment you first sit down in it, you'll understand why many consider the X chair to be the finest office chair in the world. Can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? The X chair can. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? Your X chair can. It's all in the LMX ma- massage and temperature regulation, exclusively designed and made for X chair. And once you feel the customized support of X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. Take my advice. Try X chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days once you realize how much better your chair should be you'll never go back go to xchaircommentary.com that's the letter x the word chair c-o-m-m-e-n-t-a-r-y.com for 100 dollars off your offer off your order x chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort that's xchaircommentary.com uh so uh uh betting pool for tomorrow okay Biden's supposed to speak today at five. Okay. This is like uh, Price is Right. If you go over, you lose. But whoever gets closest to when he speaks is going to win the betting pool. Or it's going to, you know, I'm going to announce it at the top of the show. Noah, what time will he speak? 528. Okay, Noah's got 528. Christine, what do you have? What was the original announced time? Five. 615. 615. Abe? 518. 518. Okay, so good strategy. Specific. Abe, nice. Abe going with the strategy. Oh, I'm low. Gonna... I mean, that's you had such a wide range between me and Christine. You just should have said 529. No, I, 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 I watch the prices right. I can tell you my <laughs> I can tell you my thinking. Okay, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say five just to create the baseline. So I'm at five. <laughs> we got five. We got we got uh, we got uh, Noah at five twenty eight. We got Christine at, at six fifteen, and we got Abe trying to sneak in under Noah at five eighteen. Abe's gonna get the dishwasher. He's gonna win the dishwasher. Okay. So, <laughs> no. What's your thinking? Oh, I. This is not a strategy on my part. Okay. Uh, he's, he's generally between thirty and forty minutes late, and because this isn't, this is more in his wheelhouse. 
he kind of wants to give this speech. So I imagine that he'll be closer to the mark than he has been on all the crises that he doesn't really have his hands around. He doesn't have his hands around this crisis either, but he, he's more comfortable doing this than the Afghanistan stuff. He's also clearly plotted this or planned this so that it can be on the local news at 6 and on you know the evening news at 6.30 and the later he goes, the more he damages that prospect. So... Um, so anyway, we'll see what we'll see what happens, uh, and we will be back with you tomorrow uh, for a Christina. No, I'm John Bob Horitz. Keep the candle burning.